Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're about to begin a new season of catechism teaching and catechism preaching. And it's fitting, I think, and helpful for us to, before we do that, rehearse what God's Word teaches us about the importance of catechesis. Now, you may have Christian friends that ask you about the practice of catechism preaching. They may say, well, I thought you were a Christian. Why does your church preach from a man-made document? That doesn't sound very Christian. That doesn't sound very Reformed. Preaching from a man-made document. Why don't you preach the Word of God? We have it in our church order that we agree with the other churches in the Federation that we will ordinarily have one of the services will have catechetical preaching. And without turning this sermon into a lecture, I would say this, just very briefly. If you think of the glorious teachings of Scripture as a large forest, then textual preaching, we take a text of Scripture, we, we analyze it, we see it in its context, and we, we dig into it. That's like analyzing one of the trees or a copse of trees in that forest. And catechism preaching is zooming right out or panning right out and looking at the whole forest and seeing the patterns that go through it, where you can find certain types of trees and, and certain patterns in the way that the forest is put together. And so catechism preaching is basically topical preaching. If you have a Christian friend that challenges the practice of catechism preaching, you can ask them, does your pastor ever preach on a topic? Does your pastor ever preach on the holiness of God? Or does he preach on some other topic, the, the blessedness of marriage, and go through the scriptures and pick out all the texts which speak about that? Well, that's catechetical preaching. That's what it is. It's the preaching of Scripture, but what we do, instead of focusing on one text, we meander through the Scriptures, and we collect all the scriptural data as much as we can in the time allowed to see what God's Word as a whole says about that topic. And in the Reformed tradition, the topical sermons that we preach don't depend on what the pastor decides, but the churches set a program of teaching in the catechism. That's a healthy thing. That way you don't get all the topics that Ken Whiskey thinks is important. That's not what you need to hear. You get to hear the topics that the church thinks is important, which is a lot safer for all of us. And so we were starting off this topical sermon, this catechism sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm not going to be expounding this and exegeting it like a normal sermon. I'm using it as a springboard to go through the scriptures to see uh, the topic of catechizing in the scriptures. And you'll see that if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses has just given the law for the second time. And, and the law is a glorious statement of what it looks like to be free. God says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're free now. And this is what freedom looks like. This is what it looks like to live in freedom. You love God and you love your neighbor. Well, how do you do that? And he gives the commandments. And so the commandments for the person that knows God's sovereign grace, not for the person that's trying to earn salvation, but for the person that has salvation as a free gift, the commandments are life-giving. They bring joy. And they remind that disobedience brings destruction, but the way of life is the way of the obedience of faith. 
And so, a reminder of what our father in the faith, Augustine, said. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. God commands perfect obedience in the commandments. But thankfully, God grants what he commands. He is sovereign. He gives us salvation as a free gift. He gives us faith as a free gift. He gives us justification as a free gift. And he gives us sanctification as a free gift. It is God who sovereignly works in our lives, and it is God who sovereignly works in us a response of faith and obedience. Now, what does God command? How do you sum up the law? Well, you see it there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is who God is. So what's the response required? Look at 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's what God wants from us. He wants our love. And if we love him, we love our neighbor. Those two two things are bound up together. And then Moses launches into the words of our text, 6 verse 6, if you have your Bible open on page 151 in most ESVs. And Moses draws our attention to a foundational principle which must undergird all catechesis. There's no sense trying to teach others about the love of God and love of the neighbor, about the law of God, about God's grace. There's no sense trying to teach others about these things if you don't know them yourself, if you don't know the power of them in your life and in your heart. And God says, this is where it starts. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. When the scripture speaks about the heart, it speaks about, another way of translating that is is the mind. It, It means that these things need to be deeply rooted in our consciousness. They need to be stored in our mind and memory. They need to govern every interaction that we have with the world outside of us and with the world inside of us. That's where things start. The catechesis of our children doesn't start with us dropping them off at the church building on a Tuesday night. It starts with us knowing God, loving God, knowing God's word, loving God's word, living God's word, living for God, and demonstrating that to our children. And so rooted in that then and built on that, God continues through Moses in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. In other words, God's love, God's law, God's grace, God's word has to be a part of everyday life. It's not for Tuesday nights, it's not for Sunday mornings and afternoons, but it's every place, every situation, every activity has to be processed and has to happen through the grid of who we are in him. And you think of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 speaks about the blessed man who day and night is meditating upon the word. And the word used there for meditation in Psalm 1 is the, is the Hebrew word which evokes the idea of kind of murmuring, kind of saying it under your breath over and over and over. Like you can go to the Middle East today and you'll see people doing that with the Quran. As they're doing their work, they're just reciting the Quran over and over and over in a soft voice, in a low voice. 
That's what Psalm 1 has in mind. You just always have the Word of God in your mind. You always have the Word of God coming off your lips. You're always reciting it, memorizing it, speaking it, sharing it, delighting in it, reading in it, studying it as much as you can while you go around doing your regular activities of the day. If you turn in your Bible to Psalm 119, 62, Psalm 119, verse 62, you'll see the commitment of the believer to do that all the time. 119, verse 62, where the psalmist says, at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. And in another portion of the psalm, it says seven times a day I praise you. This is a, a deliberate regular, scheduled attention to the Word of God to study it, to know it, to learn it, and to be incited to praise God by it. And then if you look at Psalm 119, verse 147, 119, verse 147, where the psalmist says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words my eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Psalmist wakes up in the middle of the night. He doesn't reach for his phone and check Facebook. He meditates on the Word of God. It was easy for him, of course. He didn't have Facebook, but it's, it's what he does. He doesn't check something else. He meditates on the Word of God. If you look at verses 8 and 9, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, these are, these are things which are bound These are things which are bound on our very bodies, on our hands, on our foreheads. And the Pharisees, of course, took this literally. They put phylacteries on their foreheads and on their, their, their wrists. But what God is saying is that these things need to be the ornaments of our life and our home. The very Word of God has to govern my actions, the work of my hands, my thoughts, my coming in and my going out. Everything must be governed by the Word of God. And that is how we are to teach our children, says the Lord, by living the gospel, by knowing the gospel, by loving the gospel, not just talking about it, but speaking it and living it. Now, how will that be passed on to the children? It was done through questions and answers, surprisingly enough. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, the Lord says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall tell him the story of slavery to sin and freedom in Christ, in Old Testament terms, of course. So it was in a question and answer format. We know the testimonies. We know the word of God. We know the covenant and we seek opportunities for our children to ask what the meaning of all of this is so that we can explain it. We were slaves. God set us free. And for us as believers in the New Testament dispensation, we explain that we were slaves in the Egypt of sin and that Christ has set us free. And if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. So the children ask about the law and the teaching, and they are answered. Question and answer. And the children ask about the meaning of the sacraments. If you turn your Bible to Exodus 12, 26. Exodus 12, verse 26. Exodus 12, 
And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. So children ask about the meaning of the law and the teaching. They ask about the meaning of the sacraments, and the parents are to have answers to these things. And children also ask about the liturgy. If you're still there in Exodus, it's just probably the next page, Exodus 13, verse 14. Exodus 13, verse 14, where the Lord has just told the people that they must redeem or break the neck of the first animal that is born, the firstborn of animals, and they must redeem the firstborn of man. Look at Exodus 13, 14. When in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? What does this liturgical practice mean? Why are you doing it, Dad? What's it for? Then you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery, and then continue with the explanation. So there are opportunities for questions and answers, for catechizing the covenant children about the meaning of the law, about the meaning of the sacraments, about the meaning of the liturgy. These are principles that are built right into the Old Testament. This is the practice of the people of God for thousands of years already. The Reformed churches didn't invent this just a few hundred years ago. This is an ancient practice of the people of God. You see it reflected in the glorious and great didactic psalms in, in, the, in, the, in the Psalter. And we sang part of Psalm 78. We're going to sing some more after the sermon. And Psalm 78 basically says this. We've got to teach the children. We've got to pass on what was passed on to us from our parents to our children and our grandchildren. What has to be passed on? Well, the last part of the psalm says, the mighty acts of God, the works of salvation, the works of redemption, his covenant faithfulness to his people. And there are psalms, for instance, Psalm 104, a teaching psalm which recounts God as creator and as the governor of the universe, his providence. There are psalms 105, 106, 135, 136, which speak about the mighty acts of salvation and God's faithfulness to his covenant. These psalms were part of the liturgy of worship in the Old Testament. They would be sung in public worship, and they have long, and you'll you notice that. That's why we hardly ever sing them in our worship services, because they go on for quite a bit. They go through every detail almost of what God did in the history of redemption. An exhaustive detail. These were sung so that the children could learn about who God is and what he has done. These have a catechetical uh, use in the liturgy. Now, part of the reason they were in the liturgy of worship was not just to teach facts about who God is and what he has done, but as we sing those psalms, as we read those psalms, we see that the purpose to rehearse those facts was to drive God's people to praise. We don't just want our kids to know things. We want our kids to know God and knowing him, to love him, to worship him, and to desire to live for him. That's the purpose of catechesis. The purpose of catechizing is not just to stuff a whole pile of facts in our children's skulls so that they pass a test. And then they do the big test just before they profess their faith. We're looking for them to build and grow a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the Old Testament context in the New Testament, we, we see the same thing happening. We see the apostles laying out summaries of great gospel truths laid out in the history of redemption, and, and these truths are taught to the children of the church, to 
uh, also to the new believers. These are categized. And the word categize is actually a word which we find in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament. It's a, a scriptural word. It's not a word that the church made up. Catechesis, or to categize the verb, has to do with sounding down, instructing. The, the idea of echo can be found in the root of the word. So it's kind of like teach response, speak response. It's not just dumping information or filling up the children like little pictures that have to be filled up with knowledge, but it is a speaking of God's truth and eliciting a response of understanding of love and of faith. That's all built right into that word of catechism or catechesis. Sometimes, rarely, just a couple of times in the New Testament, the verb is used to mean simply to inform. But the usual use of the word in the New Testament means to impart knowledge seeking a response. So it's a very interactive way of teaching. Well, let's look at a few of the verses in the scripture which use this word, catechesis or catechize. Luke chapter 1 verse 4 is the first one I'll draw your attention to. Luke 1 4. Luke is writing to Theophilus the history of the acts of God in the uh, conception, birth, and life of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. So Luke puts all this stuff together, this content together, most excellent Theophilus. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The word in the Greek is categized. The things that you have been categized in. Theophilus has been under the instruction of the church. He's been categized. And now Luke is writing this gospel to give him more background as to the, the truth about the, the things in which he was categized. Acts chapter 18, verse 24, we see it again. Acts 18, 24. 1824 of Acts, it's on page 927. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been catechized in the way of the Lord. He had gone through catechism classes. He had, gone, he had undergone catechesis. 1 Corinthians 14, 19, another use of the word in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14, 19. And that's on page 960, 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Paul, speaking here about tongue speaking and the use of special gifts in public worship, he says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to catechize others. There's a verb right there in the Greek, to catechize others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And then we go to Galatians 6, 6. Galatians 6, verse 6. Let the one who is catechized, that's the verb in the Greek, let the one who is catechized in the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So this is uh, a text which shows us that the practice of catechesis is a widespread practice in the churches. Paul doesn't explain the practice, he just assumes it. Where there are churches, where there are teachers, there are people that are undergoing catechesis. And they have certain responsibilities to participate in the support and maintenance of the teaching of the church. 
So there in Galatians 6, 6, it's not the verb actually, but it's the actual noun. Let the catechumen in the word share all good things. The catechumen, that's the noun. The person who is being catechized is a catechumen. Now, what were they being catechized in? What was the church teaching these people? Well, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. If you turn your Bible to Romans 6, 17. That's on page 943. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to what? To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There is a body of teaching. There's a standard of teaching which the church passes on to, to new believers and to the children of believers. It's a standard of teaching to which they are committed. Now look at this, the wording that the apostle uses. The apostle doesn't say, yeah, well, you joined the church, so you memorized the standard of teaching. You've got it all in your heads. He doesn't say that. He says, you have become obedient from the heart. This is something that you love. You understand? You love, and you're committed to it. So this is catechesis. This is teaching a, a, a body of truth, a standard of teaching, looking for a response of faith and love and obedience. We see that in the letters of Paul to Timothy as well, 1 Timothy 6.20. 1 Timothy 6.20. Where the apostle says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit is the body of teaching, the apostolic teaching. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So there's a, there's a contrast here. On the one hand, there's swerving from the faith because you're holding on to false knowledge. On the other hand, there's guarding the true knowledge which has been entrusted to the church, the true doctrine which leads to life because it tells us about who God is and what he's done. And then let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 where the apostle says, 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. The pattern of sound words. There's a standard of teaching. There's a pattern of sound words which needs to be taught, understood, passed on to others. That's the catechesis of the church, the teaching ministry of the church. If you look at 2 Timothy 1.14, verse 14, um, where he continues, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So that's another way of seeing it. The pattern of sound words is the good deposit. It's the teaching, the apostolic teaching of the church. And then if you flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 where the apostle speaks about things which are, look at the end of verse 10, which are contrary to sound doctrine. So there's a, a body of sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, by which we evaluate what is acceptable and what is not acceptable before God. Look at verse 13 in this same chapter. Verse 13, oh sorry, verse 15. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this is a little snippet of an ancient catechism. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The, the apostle uses that a few times. We, you remember that when we went through the letter to Timothy. So there were certain sayings, pithy little summaries of scriptural truth that were memorized and passed on from believer to believer. And Paul invokes one of them in verse 15. It's a trustworthy saying. It's deserving of full acceptance. These are things, truths, uh, doctrines, teachings that the believers would uh, memorize and hold in their hearts. And then we turn to Titus, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Timothy Titus 1, verse 9, that's on page 998. Titus speaking about the elders here and, and the, the description of a, a, an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And here we see one other reason why there is catechesis. The church passes on the apostolic teaching, that standard of teaching, that body of apostolic truth, that pattern of sound words, so that the saints, the children of believers, the believers themselves, and other people that come to know the Lord into the church from the world may know who God is and may know what God has done. But catechesis, besides that, besides teaching positively, also helps the church to understand to how to recognize false doctrine and false living. That's another useful benefit of good catechesis. Then we go to Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Jude 1, verse 3. That's on page 1027. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I've spoken about this in other sermons. You can't deliver an emotion. You can't even deliver someone's personal faith between them and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Jude chapter 1 verse 3, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is a reference to an objective body of teaching, the apostolic truths of the gospel, who God is, what he has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've already mentioned a little snippet of a catechism, which we've got right there in, in Timothy. And if you turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll remember this from the sermons on Timothy, I hope, 1 Timothy chapter 3 at the end, we have a, a little snippet of, of a creed that was used in the church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, great indeed, we confess. This is something they confess. Like every Sunday, we confess the creed here. We confess is the mystery of godliness. And here's a very, very early form of the church's confession of faith. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up, in glory, a doctrinal summary of the great and mighty acts of God's salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's a little snippet of a creed right there in the New Testament. So going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, God commands us to rehearse the great gospel truths about who he is and what he has done, to have those in our heart, to know them, to love them, and to live by them, and then to teach them, to pass them on to our children. 
Our children need to know who God is. They need to know what God has done. They need to understand God's covenant. They need to know of God's mighty acts of redemption. And in the New Testament, the catechism, the catechizing of the church is not only for the children of believers, but also for the new children in the faith, those who are new believers who come into the church. The early church would spend about three years catechizing new believers so that they would understand the basics of the scripture and of the apostolic doctrine. This is how Augustine did it, our our brother Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo there in North Africa in the fourth century around that time, he, he would start with a broad overview of the history of redemption. He would tell the story of the scriptures, the narrative. He would start from creation, go right through the whole story of redemption right until today. That would be the first lecture in catechesis. We depend on the parents to do that. Parents reading the Bible stories to the children at home since they're little, telling the children the stories of the scriptures, the narrative stories. And of course, that work is also supported by the preaching. For instance, we're going through Genesis right now, and so we and our children are rehearsing the story of redemption in the scriptures. That's the beginning of catechesis, knowing what God has done in history and how he has revealed himself in his work. And then Augustine would go on to the creed. He would start teaching on the creed. And the creed is simply a summary of the whole Bible, isn't it? How does it begin? I believe in God the Father, or God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. So it begins in Genesis with creation. How does it end? The life everlasting. It ends in the new heavens and the new earth, the end of Revelation there. And in between, it tells the story, doesn't it, of the conception, the birth, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ, the pouring out of the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit in the church, ministering to us the benefits of Christ's work. That's all there in the Creed in 12 very short statements. It's a beautiful, beautiful summary of the whole Bible. So that's where the church goes next. That's why we have it in our catechism first, in the Heidelberg Catechism. And then, of course, there's all, then he would move on to instruction about repentance and about justification and about the sacraments. And so we have that in the catechism as well. And then he would move on to instruction in the Christian life because catechesis wasn't just about knowing things, but it was about living in a new relationship with God. And if God has saved you from sin and if God has made you clean and if God has called you into a relationship with him, then how are you going to live? And so Augustine would teach the law as we do too. That's the next section of the catechism, isn't it? The law. Again, not just knowledge, not just facts, but as we teach the law, the section of the catechism of the law, we're looking for a response of faith from us and from our children. We're looking for a changed life, which shows that we know the Lord Jesus Christ, not just with our minds, but in our hearts. And then Augustine would go on to instruct the new believers or the children of believers in prayer, and so we do too in the Heidelberg Catechism. We end the Catechism with instruction and prayer. Again, not just brute facts, not just dry, dusty, academic, theological truths that we dig out of old books, but a living teaching to the children of the church as to how they can talk to their God and how he wants to listen to them and what are the things that they ought to be bringing to him and with what spirit and with what content they ought to be talking with their Savior. 
That's the catechesis of the church. Augustine did it about 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago. Uh, Thomas Aquinas did it uh, even later. Throughout the the last 2,000 years, in various formats, the church has more or less done this. It has taught the story of Scripture. It has taught the uh, content of the creed, taught the content of the commandments, and taught the content of the Lord's Prayer. This is not something that we as the St. Albert Canary Reformed Church have made up ourselves. We stand in a long history which goes back thousands of years when we do catechism teaching and preaching. It's not just a dry and dead tradition. It is a living and a life-giving tradition. We are doing what the Scriptures say. We have received, handed down to us, the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, the sum of apostolic teaching. And it sums up who is God and what has God done and how has that changed your life? And what does he seek from you? And what does he want from your heart? And so you see that in the way the catechism is set up. You ever notice that so often the catechism says, okay, that's true. Why? Why is that true? What benefit is it to me? The catechism asks great questions because it's good to ask questions. Because children, your parents and the church that you're members of, don't want you to just blindly accept everything that you hear. That's not true faith, where you just say, well, okay, well, it's what mom wants me to believe, so I'll just repeat it like a parrot. The church and your parents want you to ask questions and ask the hard questions. Why is that? How does that work? What benefit is it to me that the Lord teaches this or that? And that's how the catechism is structured, to ask the hard questions. And in catechesis, as we begin in the next weeks, you're more than welcome to ask those hard questions to Mr. Bosch and myself. We don't always have the answers right away. That's okay. But we can talk about them. It's good to ask questions. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just memorize the data. God wants the knowledge of true faith to be embraced by the heart. He wants the gospel to transform our outlook and our understanding and our worldview and our actions and our practices and our priorities and our life and every moment and every situation of every day. He wants the gospel truths to be the driving force in our lives. He wants it to be the north star by which we navigate. He wants it to be what impels us to move forward and to make decisions and to do whatever we do. So let's pray that God would work that in us and our children. Lord, we're about to begin catechism classes in the next weeks, and our children are going to show up every Tuesday night, and they're going to try to memorize the catechism. They're going to go through the Belgic and the Canons of Dort. They're going to get all kinds of doctrine and theology stuck in their heads. But Lord, we ask for your blessing in this process that it may not just be the passing on of information, but that it would be a holy work by which your Holy Spirit is forming and strengthening faith in the hearts of our children. That they may know, O Lord, as they're catechized by your church, and as they're catechized at home by their parents, that they may know who you are, that they may know what you've done, that they may know what you've done for them, that knowing Christ 
knowing the work of Christ, knowing the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. O Lord, that they might live before you with new hearts, transformed minds. They may live, O Lord, in every moment of every day, in every situation, in every place, that they may live to your glory now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.